Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to James chapter 2. We are continuing our sermon series through the epistle of James, and here we are on chapter 2. There are five chapters to give you kind of a read of of where we are. We spent a little more time in chapter 1 than we'll probably spend in chapter 2 because chapter 2 is kind of written in in bigger chunks. James, the half-brother of Jesus, same mother, different fathers, and as we've said, he became the unlikely convert because the resurrected Jesus appeared to him and If your half-brother appears to you after you'd seen him crucified and dead, that would probably change your mind about who he was. It certainly did, James. And so we have uh, him here after after years uh, writing an epistle. This is probably the earliest epistle we have in the New Testament, uh, earlier than the epistles of the Apostle Paul, earlier probably than anything else that was written. Uh, James is often called the moral theologian. And by that, it means that James believed as all the writers of the New Testament believe, but he in particular believed that behavior was rooted in our concept of God. And for example, the more you understand God's glory and beauty, the less you're enslaved by trying to bring glory to yourself. It changes your behavior, changes your pride, your arrogance, your boasting. Behavior is rooted in our concept of God. That's kind of what Christian growth is, is more and more changing, I should say, a forming, shaping our concept of God by what God has revealed in his word, and that manifests itself through, through time into our behavior, into our lives. And James is always challenging us, very challenging epistle. These sermons are probably better for me to have to preach than you to have to listen, in fact. But James is always challenging us with the gospel's counterintuitive wisdom. It's not the normal thing that we would see. It's a wisdom that correctly sees and perceives what the world misperceives about reality. It's easy to do, to make quick judgments and misperceive what you see. Here's an example right here of a picture uh, that uh, you can see of of an office party. Now, what you can't see is the caption below that reads, it's that horrifying moment when your friend's fat arm makes you look naked in that office party photo. <laughs> and you were judging her, weren't you? And you were judging me. You thought I'd crossed the line. I'd finally done it. <laughs> it might happen someday, but not today. <laughs> judging her, judging me based upon a misperception of what you quickly, quickly see. And, and we do that all the time. Looks can be deceiving. They often are. And we can make wrong, very wrong judgments and misplaced reality about people, misperceived reality, especially when it comes to how we perceive and judge people on the surface. There's a word for that in the Bible. It's called partiality, or some translations might call it favoritism. Partiality. What is partiality? That's what James is talking about. In this first part of chapter 2, we'll just pick up in verse 1. He says, my brothers. Now, that means in a both gender kind of way. In, some, in fact, some of your translations will say my brothers and sisters. It's a Greek word that meant both when applied plurally to a general audience. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. It's interesting because, you know, we have the New Testament and it's translated. And you have different translations and they're they're doing a good job of trying to translate an ancient language, the ancient Greek language this was originally written in, all the New Testament was originally written in, into something that, that is, it, we understand. There's obviously no one-to-one correspondence between languages, as we've said before. And this particular word that's translated as 
partiality or favoritism, depending upon your translation, is a Greek word that's kind of combining two words. It means to receive the face. (laughs) Don't receive the face. Don't just receive the face of people when you, as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That means don't make judgments about people based upon external appearance. And you receive or reject, ignore them based upon that, the surface, the sh- what we might, we might call the shallow. And then James gives an example of what partiality might look like. Here's, here's what he says in verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, this is a person coming to church, comes into the church meeting of some kind, probably a worship service, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit over here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there somewhere, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now this illustration here of a scenario, the illustration of a rich man versus a poor man coming into the church is not meant to be the only way Christians might show partiality. It's just one example. It doesn't have to be just rich, poor kind of distinctions, although that is a typical one and common one throughout the thousands of years of human history. But there can also be the other by-the-face distinctions in our culture, whereby we might quickly receive or reject, ignore somebody. Maybe it's that we quickly decide, quickly make a distinction whether somebody's cool or uncool, or popular or unpopular, or attractive or less attractive, or educated or not so much, or connected socially or unconnected, or young or old. You know, all these kinds, maybe race, all these kinds of things are ways that on the appearance of things, on the surface of things, we make these distinctions, these evil distinctions based upon external judgments. That James says that partiality, this receiving the face, is in any way our culture might separate, any way our culture might evaluate and devaluate, make distinctions by external judgments. Now, people always do that. People are always going to do that. We're never going to have a society where that's not being done. That's not our agenda, is to have a society that doesn't show partiality. Won't happen. But Christians, Christians, when Christians show partiality, when Christians in particular make distinctions, evaluate and devaluate people at face value, James says that they are judging people by, he says, evil thoughts. That could be translated evil reasonings. The reasoning process is flawed. It's flawed by sin. It's flawed by evil. We've become judges with evil thoughts. So so in James' little scenario applied to our day, into our church today, let's just say today, into our church come two people. And right away, you see the, maybe you're serving coffee, maybe you're just walking in the foyer, maybe you're sitting down and they sit next to you, you're deciding perhaps where you're going to sit. But whatever it is, you're seeing two people. And right away, in your thinking, you make a judgment. You make 
a distinction that separates, makes a distinction between the two people. Now, it's a deeply flawed distinction, but you don't know it. It's deeply flawed by this thing working inside of your reasoning called sin, but you don't know it. And the differences you see determine the value that you place on each person. You're placing a price tag on each person. In James's scenario, one is wealthy. You know they're wealthy because you saw the car they drove in as they came to church. You know they're wealthy because how they're, they're dressed. You know they're wealthy because you perhaps know them in the community to be wealthy. Maybe you saw their face on the cover of a business magazine or something like that. But you know them in the community, and you know the other person, well, you saw them get out of a gremlin. <laughs> they might be wearing sweats. They're just disheveled a bit. And you're not sure, but you think you saw them working at the gas station last week. And you're just... Ah, it just doesn't quite have the price tag that the other person has. And so in that moment, you make a, well, what he calls an evil distinction. By that, you determine the value, and you pay attention to the one who's the wealthier in your mind, and the other, you don't even realize it, but you're ignoring. But it may not just be wealth, poverty, or more money, less money. It might be something else in our culture that kind of defines rich and poor. Maybe perhaps it's one that's physically attractive and the other not so much, but you've placed a, placed a price tag on the two based upon that. Or maybe one is a well-known athlete and the other not so much, but the athlete, you've placed this price tag. You've evaluated and made a value and a devalue of the other who's not. Or maybe it's somebody who really looks cool. They're dressed hip, their hair is hip, all these kinds of things. And the other, eh, not so much. You've placed a price tag on the two. Or perhaps one is someone you know is well-connected in the community. You know they're well-connected in business. And the other, not so much. You've placed a price tag on the two of them. You've made a distinction, an evil distinction. Or maybe it's... Age. One's a young professional, the other one's an elderly retired person. Maybe it's race. You prefer your own race and the other, for some reason, just doesn't... Somebody you want to get to know. You devalue, based upon the face, based upon the external. And by these criteria, you are evaluating, putting up value on people. You determine the value of one person over the other by appearances by external things. And immediately in your mind, you make a quick judgment of important person here and there, not so much. And so you focus your attention on the important person, and without even realizing it, it's not as if you articulated it to yourself in any kind of way, without realizing it, you ignore the not so much person. That's what the Bible calls partiality. In your thinking, you're separating people merely by the externals. We might say the more shallow, temporary attributes, looks, hair, clothes, coolness, connections, money, possessions, position, all things that can be taken away at any moment. They're not things that are inherent attributes of the person. They're things that can come and go and probably in the course of life in many ways are going to go as the person gets older, certainly many of the external things. 
So James says in verse 4, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? We didn't think it was that, right? We kind of thought, well, that's just kind of the way life is. We all kind of have to, we like some people and other people not so much. James says, no, there's something else going on. It's something evil. It's something demonic. It's something at work. It's something that's making you a judge. And that's an evil thing. Why is it evil? Why isn't it just something that, you know, partiality is part of, the, part of what we do. Why is partiality, receiving people or rejecting people, ignoring people by the external things, why is that particularly evil to God? Things like wealth, all those. Why is determining the value of people by their wealth, their looks, their dress, their coolness, their age, their race, why is determining who is more worthy of your attention something that's particularly evil to God? Now, James shows us the evil of partiality by showing us the heart of God. That's the next verse, verse 5. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? We have no idea what that means. That sentence right there is so full of gravity, we would get on our knees and cry if we had any idea of the full, full meaning of that phrase. Which he has promised to those who love him, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now in James's day in particular, this is very, very early in the church, that was what was happening. Those with economic status, those with political power were using their economic status to bear pressure and oppress and persecute the early Christians. But the point is bigger than that. James calls us not to be so dazzled by the rich. The rich in all the ways that we might consider rich in this culture, not just money. He says many of the rich, wealthy, look good, dress well, coolness, might be on the right side of pop culture, but are on the wrong side of history when it comes to God's universe and God's kingdom. Of course, James is not, he's not telling these Christians to let go of one partiality and adopt another. He's not saying to reject and ignore or be unkind to these rich people. He's just simply arguing that it is stupid to give undue deference to them, to pay special attention to them at the expense of the poor. Partiality toward the rich, it betrays something in us. It betrays a fawning, servile mentality to those who aren't necessarily worthy of it. But James is well aware of what the Bible says. In fact, he's right here in his mind. I'll show you why in a minute. He's well aware of what the Old Testament says in the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 15, where he says, God says through Moses, do not show partiality to the poor. This is saying almost the opposite. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism. They're synonyms, aren't they? Favoritism to the great. So don't show partiality either, either way. But judge your neighbor fairly. Verse 18, just a few verses later, says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's where Jesus gets it, and Jesus repeats that over and over as one of the greatest commandments. For I am the Lord. 
Because of who I am, again, your theology, the moral theologian, your behavior is rooted in your concept of God. I am he is. I am the creator. I am the Lord. So don't show partiality to the rich or to the poor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is a passage in James's mind because let's go back now to read where we left off, chapter 2, verse 8. Here's the bottom line. If you really fulfill, James says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, his mind is in Leviticus 19. Don't show favor, don't show partiality to either the rich or the poor. Love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. That's the bottom line. But if you show partiality, well, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. See, here's, here's, here's why partiality is so evil. Remember James says in verse 6, that you, but you have dishonored the poor. By paying attention, fawning over, somehow valuing, putting a price tag of ooh-ah over the rich, paying attention and ignoring the poor, he says you've dishonored the poor. You've dishonored the poor man. The disrespect, the dishonoring, the disregard of the poor person is an implicit devaluation of their soul. You're judging them based upon the face, and you're devaluing their soul. But Christians, again, every, every culture is going to do this. This is the human condition. We're not going to try to change the world today on this. But Christians... Those who believe in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, he says in verse 1. Christians of all people, churches of all places, should be those who treat the poor with respect and honor, a welcoming open arms, not practicing partiality, not fawning over the rich, stepping over our tongue, trying to get a relationship with them like some used car salesman buttoning his big tweed coat over his fat belly trying to make a sale, but rather treating everybody with respect. Nothing against used Carl Smilson, by the way. <laughs> Here I go. I can't help it. I'm making distinctions. There I go. <laughs> Why of all people Christians? Well, because we believe the Bible when it says, for example, in Proverbs 22.2, rich and poor have this in common. There really isn't a distinction in the most important thing. They have this in common. There really is no separation. They have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. Well, then that puts the price tag equally on everybody. That's where the price tag comes from. We of all people should realize that all should be treated with respect and honor as human beings created in the image of God. But he says in verse 9, but if you show partiality, if you receive the face, so to speak, you're committing sin and are convicted, and, and we can just as easily translate that word exposed. By the law as transgressors. You're being exposed. You're committing sin. That word is the same word that he said back in chapter 1, verse 20, when he said the anger of man does not produce, that's the word, the righteousness of God. It doesn't work out, produce, the right, manufacture, I should say, bring about the righteousness of God. Same word here. So what he's really saying is that partiality, by doing so, you're, you're producing you're manufacturing sin. Your little sin factory, adding it more to the church, more to your life, and more to this world. 
So James says, receiving the faith, partiality produces sin and it exposes your true beliefs. Well, that's a big deal. See, James is constantly asking us, the, challenging us with the question, an honest answer, to really wrestle with it. Who do you really believe? What do you really believe about Jesus? That's really what it all comes down to. That's why the very first verse really is about that. That's the whole point. What do you believe about Jesus? Verse 1, let's read it again. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. See, why do you think James adds the Lord of glory here? It's obviously intentional. In a sense, James is asking us, he's, he's challenging us, from whom do you derive your glory? What gives you, what gives your life its heaviest glory, its heaviest value? Where do you think your price tag comes from? On you. Now, all throughout the Bible, that, that of glory, that word glory is really talking ultimately about God. It's, it's that, 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 that God is the God of glory and beauty, majesty over his creation. But also all throughout the Bible, glory is that resurrected state of being like Christ to which all Christians are destined and in which Christ now exists. It's what Jesus says, we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of God. That's the glory. The sun, you can't even look at it. There's a sense of that's the glory of Christ, and that's the glory of those who are in Christ, resurrected in Christ, in the kingdom of God. And so describing Jesus as the Lord of glory reminds us that he is God who controls all of history and who will come at the end of history to save and to judge and to establish his eternal kingdom where his people are going to shine like the sun in glory. His glory, share in His glory. So, so referring to their faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, is getting right to the very heart of the issue of partiality. Where Christians are giving too much importance to the most shallow, temporal, face value glory of created human beings and in so doing, rejecting or ignoring the glory of Christ. That's the point. And so again, just read verse 6, you have dishonored the poor man. You might say degloried the poor man. And by doing so, you have degloried yourself. You chose a temporal glory as more important than the glory of Jesus. That's what happens every time we practice partiality. We don't know it. We don't see it. We don't know that's going on at the time, but that's what's happening. There are two, always two sorts of glory. And James says you're either believing in one or the other. Determining your glory from one or the other. Living by the value of one while devaluing the other. So the question is, he's challenging us with, is which glory do you really believe? James says that when we show partiality, we're being exposed. We're being exposed. Our true beliefs are being exposed. We do not believe as much in the glory of Christ as we do deriving glory from somebody who has what we think is more important. 
That's, that's what's happening, even though we don't think of it that way. Whether it's looks or wealth or coolness or whatever it is. This past week, Scott Johnson, who's the tall guy who usually plays at the piano, he's been our worship leader since we first started the church 13 years ago. He's been on our staff. But he's, you know, he's, he's got a personality where he kind of enjoys his privacy at times. And he's, he, he, he drove back from a family funeral a couple weeks ago. Drove back from Minnesota to Missouri by himself, and, and, he, and, he, and he thought everything was great when he got home, and then this week he got a ticket in the mail, and it showed his car, <laughs> a, you know, these, these, these cameras now, uh, and it, it took a picture of his car. He's just riding along, enjoying life. He's by himself. He's listening to a Matt Chandler sermon. He's eating his McDonald's breakfast. He's happily driving home, going 70 and a 55. <laughs> At least that's what this ticket says. But he had no idea he's being photographed. We might say he's going along happily, but he had no idea that he was being exposed by the snapshots. And I think so, too. We happily show favoritism. It's what everybody does. How, how big of a deal can it be to put a price tag on people, make quick distinctions by external things? We show favoritism toward the rich, toward the good-looking, toward the cool, toward the young, whatever it is, while ignoring the other, and we don't realize that a snapshot is being taken at that moment. We're being exposed. That's what our true belief is. It's a picture of where our heart really is, what glory we really think is glory. Every time. We just happily go, hey, we have no idea. So verse 5 again, he says, listen, my beloved brothers, here's the deal. Here's the bottom line. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world, rejected, we could say, to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? See, he says the poor in Christ. Remember, this is somebody coming to church. The poor in Christ, remember, are, are in fact rich. You don't see it that way. You're not perceiving reality that way. But they are rich, not in an external sense. That's why you don't see it. But in an eternal sense, because they are heirs of the kingdom. And you know, every good story, well, I shouldn't say every good story, but common in our folklore, so to speak, are those kind of stories where there's a, a, a prince or an heir of a big, large inheritance, but right now in the story, they're hidden in rags and treated as un, an unimportant outsider. You know those stories. The unimportant outsider poor person really is the prince to the throne, or really is the heir to the, to the fortune. And the story is how that comes about. Only later do we, everyone realize that they, they entered their reign, they entered their riches. You see those stories in the Bible, too. They are an intricate part, in fact, of the biblical story. You see that with King David, where Samuel's going to anoint God's chosen king. And he goes to David's family, and he keeps going, I, God's telling me to anoint the next king here. But I, and so, so David's father keeps bringing one good-looking tall brother out after another. It's got to be this guy. He's tall. He's good-looking. No, God's telling me not him. Nothing wrong with him, but no, he's not the next king. Well, I, where is he? I don't know. Well, I mean, there's, a, there's David. He's just a stupid shepherd out there in the field. It can't be him. Well, no, just bring him in. What? 
okay, they bring David in, yeah, he's the next king. See, because man looks at the outer appearance, but God looks at the heart, he says. There's Jesus, born in an animal stall to a poor family in Nazareth. And he, and he, in fact, later he becomes this guy that shows that he's actually God. He's the son of God. He's doing these miracles. He's walking on water. He's healing people blind all their lives, people crippled all their lives, raising the dead, calming the storm. And he goes to his hometown in Nazareth where he grew up. And they're just kind of going, oh, isn't that Joe's son? Don't we know his sisters? Didn't his sister do my laundry this week? He's been poor in Peoria all his life. How can he be the God of the universe? No, we're waiting for another. See, that's the story. That's how God works. It's, that, it's always that story. James says that exact thing, that exact story is happening every day right now in our church. God has chosen many of the poor in this world, in the eyes of this world, in the judgment of this world, to be rich heirs of his kingdom. And so when we merely receive the face, we get it all wrong. We think somebody's naked when they are princes and heirs. And we dishonor them. But we'll be better able to see people as they really truly are by remembering. We live on a long timeline here. There's an end of the story here. The kingdom of God and the Lord of glory. And that's what brings value and glory to people. When we remember what C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Weight of Glory, he talks about seeing people according to this timeline, who they will be then, shining like the sun in the kingdom of God, is really who they are now. We just don't see it yet. And he writes it this way in, the, in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them, that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry. Do you see your wife, your husband, as an immortal one who will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father? And if you saw them now as they will be, you'd be strongly tempted to worship? <laughs> that would change your conversation. <laughs> it is immortals with whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. You believe that? I'll be honest, that quote has come to my memory more times than I can imagine. That has changed how I, when I remember that quote, it changes how I treat people, how I see people. When we really believe that because Jesus is the Lord of glory, and when we really believe that God has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, we see people differently. We see them as potential heirs of this inheritance, and we see them very, very differently. 
to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, next to Christ himself and because of what Christ has done on the cross and by his resurrection, the most unattractive, the dullest, the poorest, the shabbiest person you meet, should they be in Christ, is the most glorious, holiest object, most honored, respect-worthy, beautiful, lovely object presented to your senses. You just don't see it yet. But that's why when we make distinctions, we're so stupid. We, of all people, the church, are evil. It's like a cancer. But we don't want to be that kind of church, right? I don't want to be that kind of person, right? You don't either, right? We want to be a church that has open arms, that sees people according to their glorious potential in Christ because we understand the Lord of glory. And it it just makes us welcoming people, no matter what they look like, how much money they have, what kind of car they drive, how they dress, whether they're cool, uncool, whatever their history is, past failures. We see future potential. We're not locked into past failures or present flaws. And, you know, there are people in our church right now who are really doing that actively. Many of the wealthy in our church are doing very actively what I just said by sacrificing, serving in a ministry called Into Action. This is just an example of of people who are seeing the value in people that society would see as, eh, ignore, reject. Having a church that welcomes them when society would say, "Eh." I just want to watch a quick video here that was put together by Garrick Parmalee, one of our staff. And just watch a video here of a member of our church and a ministry that our church supports and many in this church support. I think you'll find it very interesting. I'm a released offender. I spent nearly 10 years in prison myself. Been to prison three times. I've been where they've been, and I know what a difference it could make to to turn my life over to Christ. And I know that that's the solution. And I know that it took people to love me for me to get through the process that I had to go through. And I'm absolutely here to love them so that they can get through the process that they need to go through. Upon release from prison this last time, I began attending the crossing. Uh, My relationship with Christ became a lot deeper. It became a lot more practical. 
I wanted to take some of the knowledge and some of the experience that I'd obtained and, and begin to help other people. What I know is a lot of people who are incarcerated read their Bible. I know a lot of people who are incarcerated attend church services. I know that a lot of people who are incarcerated have a sincere desire to have a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. What happens and what I experienced in the past is I was released to an environment, I was released to a society, to a society that did not necessarily support that walk with Christ. It was at that point that I would fall back into my old ways and get in trouble again. So what we wanna do here at Into Action is target those individuals who while incarcerated have made a commitment to Jesus Christ. And what we wanna do is provide an environment when they're released to support and encourage that walk, to teach them how to apply the gospel, how to apply Christian principles to their life every day. James Smith, how are you? Oh, I'm fine, that's good. I know, I know that we met once before. At the resource uh, over fair. Over at the resource fair, so well, it's good to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you guys. Okay. I'm, I'm really thankful that you were able to be here. I believe interaction is needed in this community because to the best of my knowledge, and I'm pretty aware of what's going on around the Columbia Boone County area, this is the only transitional program for released offenders that truly has a Christ-centered perspective. More than the ability to pay rent, more than the level of education somebody has, more than their family members or who they know in the community, what we seek most is an individual who tells us that they have a serious commitment to cultivate their relationship with Jesus Christ. Everything that we do at this house is built around that commitment. We consider our efforts here just to provide an environment for people to grow closer to Christ. During that process, we provide housing. During that process, we provide case management. During that process, we'll provide funding for medication or state IDs or basic needs. We'll help them find jobs, but it all needs to center around their relationship with Jesus Christ. This is your kingdom. Welcome home. This is it. This is a new home. <laughs> Thank you. This is home now, and you're welcome to stay as long as it takes to get on your feet. We're here to help you get on your feet, and, um, and, and we'll just turn it over to God from here. Oh, man. Okay? Praise God. Thank you. Our belief is that for individuals to be transformed to the degree that these individuals need to be transformed to be law-abiding productive members of our society it takes something a little bit deeper than just a self-help group or a self-help program or a positive thinking book we believe that it's going to take divine intervention from jesus christ and and the gospel to change these people from the inside out we believe it's a heart issue we certainly believe that everybody has the ability to change in Christ. We operate from, from a belief system that God can change anybody. Some, if not many of the individuals that we will deal with here, they've been given up on by everybody in their life. Their family has given up on them, their friends have given up on them, 
the system, the state. Uh, sometimes even their churches have given up on them. But we know that the gospel is, is their answer. We know that the gospel is their solution. I was one of those individuals who everybody had given up on. I was one of those individuals who nobody thought would ever make it. So when I have people come to this house with that attitude, I can look them in the eye and I can tell them and I can believe that God can make a transformation in their life. That it's the gospel that's going to make a difference in their life. It doesn't matter to me how many times they've tried to get clean off of alcohol or drugs. It doesn't matter to me how many times they've been to prison and swore that they would never go back. Those things are ir irrelevant, I believe, in, in light of the gospel. I believe one word from God, one experience with God is all they need to get on the right path and to never go back to the way that they were living. Okay, guys. When we impact the lives of individuals who are released from prison, and when we help them succeed, we're reducing victimization in our own community. And prevention is a really tough thing to measure. We don't know when somebody goes the right direction when they're released from prison. We don't know if that individual was gonna rob somebody, rape somebody, stab somebody, get another DUI, and kill a couple people. We just don't know what, what type of victimization we prevented, but we do believe what we're doing is making Columbia a safer place. My, my biggest hope for individuals who go through this program is eternal salvation. I share with the men often in this house that I don't believe the worst thing that can happen to them is they go back to prison. I think that's far from the worst thing that can happen to any of us. I think the worst thing that can happen is we die without a relationship with Jesus Christ. When, when Garrick Parmalee, our, one of our video staff guy, uh, shot that video, uh, it's the picture of James, who's a released offender. He's got that footage of James being released from prison. What we didn't know at the time and what he didn't know at the time was that James has become a member of this church. Uh, you perhaps have seen him uh, in, in the foyer, and many other released offenders have become part of this church as well. It's because we want to be the church that says what, what Dan said to James when he first came into the house. You're welcome here. This is your home. We want you here. This is your home. And that's the, kind of, that's the kind of people we need to be. That's the kind of church we want to be. But that's the kind of people we want to be. Rather than just what everybody else does with partiality. It's stupid. It's evil. It misses the whole story. Before we take our offering, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you have a far greater story than what we see here. Your story is amazing. You're the God who controls history, and you're the God who sees the full timeline of our lives, and you're the God who will glorify us in the resurrection that will be transformed in the image of Christ and shine like the sun. And that changes how we see the potential of everyone we meet especially those who come through these doors. 
We pray that you would help us to live by the belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, and not dishonor anyone by partiality. And now we give as an act of worship because you are the God who gives us everything and nobody has ever given to you that they should be repaid because everything comes from your hand. To you be the glory forever. Amen.